I took a, a workshop in the Pacific Northwest up in Olympic National Park, and I came straggling in with a lot of excitement about nature photography, but I, I was very poorly equipped. I had this uh, tripod that I brought with me, but it was uh, pretty pathetic. And I, you know, I thought that I was doing well, but my eyes were opened to a very different world. The support equipment was as important as you know, the quality of the lens that you've got on your camera or the quality of the camera itself. I was introduced to really right stuff, called them up uh, on the spot and it was like 2.30 in the morning. I was living in Shanghai at that time and I said, Brian, you know, you probably don't remember me, but I'm one of your customers and I'm interested to know if you want to sell really right stuff. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This week, we have Ron Hayes, Michael Morrow, Doug Gardner, and myself, Mark Raycroft. What's going on, guys? It's good to see you again so soon. Hi, Mike, see you, hey. Mark. Mike, how's well, it going in Denver? I'll throw this out one at a time so we'll get it straight. What's going on in Denver, man? So Denver is, uh, it's not like fall is actually here. We've got like 65 degree temperatures and it's just like summer's still kind of hanging on. What about uh, South Carolina, my friend? Uh, it's turning gorgeous finally after sweltering summers of 100 degrees and 90% humidity. We're finally catching a break and, uh, you know, starting to enjoy some kind of fall weather. So we're looking forward to getting out now. So with the cooler weather, has the state bird changed from the mosquito at this point? <laughs> they, they, they're just they're slowly starting to die off a little bit. <laughs> right on. That's good to hear. That's always helpful when you get outdoors. Ron, how's it in Wyoming today? Uh, it's good. It's it's pretty seasonable right now as far as temperature goes. You were saying the other day you don't know in Canada when the next windstorm's going to be to blow all the leaves off the tree. In Wyoming, we know it's it's going to be tomorrow. Was oh, that right? Everything wraps up. Tomorrow. If not this afternoon, no. It, oh wow. The wind blows every day, so yeah, the leaves are just about clear already wow. due to all the wind. But other than that, it's it's pretty seasonable, pretty mild. That's amazing when I consider how far south and west you are of where we are and the fact that you're bearing the leaves already. And we're, it's happening here, but we still have a lot. Our oaks are just starting to change color, so I'm still in the middle of fun, crazy autumn production shooting. Well, I'm, I'm telling you, it's just because of the windstorms, you know, and... In South Carolina, they'd give our windy days a name, call them a tropical storm, right? That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're here, still green, guys. We're completely yeah. green. Here, you know? it's just Tuesday and Wednesday. That's the only names we give them. <laughs> <laughs> tough country, buddy. It's a tough country. Well, how about where you are, Mark? Well, that's been nice. So it's just a matter of trying to get as much of this color in as possible while it hangs on. So, and it has been hanging on. And like w where we are, we have these oak ridges, savannas. And so with that hardwood forest, those leaves stick around longer. The maples are all off and they turn vibrant colors. They're kind of, they're better than the oaks for backgrounds for wildlife. But the oak is still hanging on. So I've got another week, week and a half, I'm hoping, before that wind gets from Wyoming here to Ontario and, and changes the scene. Absolutely. So for our listeners, I want to take a quick moment and just encourage you, no matter what platform you're listening to us on, to take the time to subscribe and follow along. That way you'll be kept up to date as we launch more and more podcasts as the week go by, weeks go by. And take a moment, show us the love, give us a positive rating, give us the thumbs up, the five-star review, because that helps us to do what we love to do and to bring you these ep episodes on an ongoing basis. So this week's podcast is not only cool a good podcast with all four hosts are on but we have a special guest this week from a different part of the photography world that we invite and are excited to have him on we have joe johnson the owner and ceo of really right stuff an amazing company that produces excellent hardware for photographers and videographers and is a good friend of doug gardner so i'll let doug introduce joe from here we are pleased to have Joe Johnson, and I've know, known Joe for a while now. Um, I first met Joe uh, back when I had the TV series on PBS uh, called Wild Photo Adventures, and uh, Joe 
and Really Right Stuff, they were our premier sponsor for the entire run of the show, and uh, which uh, really helped make the show the success that it was. Uh, we couldn't have done it without Joe, and um, you know, hats off to to supporting that. Um, you know, we we had a lot of a lot of people that really were educated. They learned a lot, and to this day, I get at least a couple hundred emails. Uh, every couple of days, um, wanting to know about the show and, you know, or saw the show, you know, on old YouTube channel. And they're like, you know, Oh, we, we learned so much. And so, you know, Joe helped make that possible. And, uh, I want to go ahead and thank him for that. But, uh, but yeah, Joe, thanks for being on the show with us today. Uh, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure. So that kind of in a in a roundabout way, Joe, makes you a big part of this podcast as well because three of us met through the show. So we thank you as well. Yeah, because uh, Ron Ron hosted a show, and um, uh, Mike also hosted a show with us. So um, so yeah, so small world, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I'm glad to finally get to meet you all. <laughs> yeah. Well, Joe, tell us a little bit about, because uh, I know the story, but I, I want you to tell these guys uh, the story about, you know, how you came about Really Right Stuff and, you know, how you acquired it. And uh, it's a pretty interesting story, I thought. Uh, well, I think it's I think it's interesting, too. And um, I was first introduced to Really Right Stuff uh, as a avid photographer. I took a workshop from George Lepp. I don't know if you all have heard of George before. But he uh, continues to be one of the uh, editors on Outdoor Photographer magazine, and he's uh, quite a well-known outdoor photographer. I took a a workshop from him in the Pacific Northwest up in Olympic National Park, and I I came straggling in um, with a lot of excitement. This was back in 1993 about nature photography, but I, I I was fairly poorly equipped. I had this, uh, I don't, I'm not even going to mention the brand of the tripod that I brought with me, but it was uh, pretty pathetic. And I, you know, I thought that I was doing well, but my eyes were opened to a very different world. And, and George kind of taught me that the support equipment was as important as, you know, the quality of the lens that you've got on your camera or the quality of the camera itself in, in terms of the outcome. You know, and you know, I, I not just George, but also I read a lot of books from John Shaw, who was also saying the same thing. Got to have great support equipment. So at that time, I was working overseas for a company called Best Foods. You know, uh, east of the Rockies, it's called Hellman's Mayonnaise. West of the Rockies, it's called Best Foods Mayonnaise. And and I was in uh, at that point in time, I was in management. I was the country manager of Taiwan. And I was introduced to Really Right Stuff, which was a a brand new company located in Los Osos, California, by George Lepp, who also lived in Los Osos, California. And uh, I became a customer, a very happy customer. But many years later, I was kind of decompressing on the Internet with my Internet hobby, you know, Really Right Stuff, because, you know, my company had been bought by uh, a much larger company called Unilever. Unilever is an Anglo-Dutch large corporate conglomerate. And they, you know, I was working with with Unilever. And at that time, I had already moved from Taiwan to mainland China. And I was the CEO and chairman of the Best Foods China operations. And I was on my way to take over the Mexican affiliate from Best Foods at the time that Unilever bought Really Right Stuff. And they said, no, hold on. We want you to stay in Asia, help merge the companies in Asia. Uh, and I did that with, with Unilever for, um, for about 18 months. Now, uh, did, did Unilever buy Best Foods or Really Right Stuff? Did Best I say foods. Really Right Stuff? I meant yeah, Best Foods. You did. Well, okay. Yeah. We're all excited about really right stuff, so it makes sense. That's okay. <laughs> but yeah, well, they, good, they bought, good catch, Ron. They bought Best Foods, whom I was still working for at that time. Uh, they eventually uh, made me a senior vice president in charge of Northeast Asia business, uh, food business. 
which included Japan, Korea, Hong Kong, Taiwan, wow. uh, mainland China. And I did that for just a few months and realized that the position was one that actually could be eliminated. Uh, it was a brand new position. And I said, you know, gentlemen, you ought to just eliminate this position. And these people who are reporting to me should just report to my boss who was sitting in Singapore. And they said, OK, well, what are we going to do with you? And one of the things that they wanted me to do was take over the uh, Slim Fast business and introduce Slim Fast into Asia. But uh, as I said, I was decompressing with my photography hobby, and I saw a lot of people who were complaining about the previous owner of Really Right Stuff because he did not take credit cards. You had to mail in for a paper catalog, and he would only sell to you after you had the catalog in hand, and you would have to mail a check to him, to his P.O. box, and, you know, people were saying things like, oh, the, you know, the product is great, but it's just so hard to do business with really right stuff. You know, a, a light went off in my head and I, I was literally inspired to call the owner up and his name's Brian Geyer. And I never had any problems working with Brian, but a lot of people did have some issues working with Brian and I, but I called him up uh, on the spot and it was like 2.30 in the morning. Uh, Shanghai. I was living in Shanghai at that time. And I said, Brian, you know, you probably don't remember me, but I'm one of your customers. And I'm interested to know if you want to sell really right stuff. And he said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, he was wanting to retire. And six months later, I moved from Shanghai, China to Los Osos and took over that, that little bitty business. You know, they thought that I was kind of nuts in Unilever, taking over this mom and pop uh, organization. It wasn't even a mom and pop. It was just a pop organization. You know, and <laughs> uh, pretty much just ran the whole thing himself. And uh, when when I first bought it, it was just my wife Joan and I uh, running it out of our garage, just exactly like uh, Brian Geyer did. You know, we quickly made a number of changes. We we quickly adopted uh, credit cards and actually selling product over the internet. And, you know, we were able to grow the business very rapidly. We, we started introducing a lot of products. We came out with you know, one of our first major products was the BH55 ball head that a lot of you are probably familiar with and all of your audience have probably heard of. And that's, that's been one of our flagships ever since. And uh, subsequently, we, we launched tripods uh, a bit later. You know, we grew out of the house very fast. And then we went into a small office outside of the house in Los Osos. And then four years later, we moved to a larger office in San Luis Obispo, which is Doug, where you met us. Right, right, and right. Came out to that, that uh, office in San Luis Obispo. And then we moved to a much bigger facility in, uh, out by the airport in San Luis Obispo. Again, about four years later, we ran yeah, out. That building was, the, was at the all-green building that you had uh it wasn't green it was a uh, tan and well no it was i mean it's um like recycled built out of completely oh. recycled materials and everything or was that the one you have now well we had solar we, we we put a solar carport in there so maybe that's what you're thinking oh, but, okay uh, yeah we uh we put a solar okay. carport in that facility and yeah, that worked quite well for us. That was about 18,700 feet. It was quite big, much bigger than wow. our garage, but we ran out of space <laughs> there again. And when we started looking to expand that building, we decided we should look outside of San Luis Obispo as well. And that's kind of the, the thing that kicked us into Utah. We discovered that we could buy a facility in Utah uh, much cheaper than we could build onto our existing facility. And our employees, you know, I had two employees that quit on me in, in San Luis because they couldn't afford a house uh, in San Luis Obispo. And right about that time, we were thinking about this move. You know, one of them, you know, one of them is already gone, but one of them uh, I approached and said, hey, you know, in confidence, we haven't quite made the decision yet, but if, if we move to Utah, would you stick with the company? And he said, yeah, by all means. And so, uh, you know, that kind of sealed the deal. And so um, we decided to go ahead and make the, the move to Utah. Now we're in a building that um, 
we're in the middle of uh, fixing it up and doing a lot of tenant improvements. By the time we're done, it'll be about 40,000 feet. Wow. We're going to have our grand opening on the 16th of November. You're all invited. Wow. Listener, right so come. Congratulations. 16th of November at 3 p.m. That's a Friday. So Man. book your airplane tickets and get out here. If I wasn't shooting bighorn sheep that day, I, I would be out there <laughs> for sure. Well, let, before we go too far, let, let me, let's go back to the garage. So yep. when you took it over from Brian Geyer, what? Uh, what products did he have at that time? I mean, was it just one ball head that he had? And, oh, he and no, no ball heads. I mean, it was uh, 90% of his business were quick release plates and, okay. and uh, clamps. So, and, okay. So the ball head and the tripod, all that is your development. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, not only that, the lever release clamp, that was the first major product that we launched was the lever release clamp. The, the first patent that we have it, that we got was on that lever release clamp. That one was released within about six months of taking over the business. And then the ball head, then the tripods and a bunch of other stuff. But primarily it was uh, quick release plates and clamps when we bought it. He also had a flash bracket. He had a couple of flash brackets mm. and some uh, focusing rails, you know, not geared, but uh, mm -hmm. that was about it. So but he not, made the best stuff out there. I remember yeah. calling him because if you wanted the best clamps or the best plates, you went to really right stuff. I can remember dealing with him just like you said. He was on the phone and you had to do it a certain way. And if you said, I think I need this, he would say, nope, this is what you need. You know, he, <laughs> it was one of those deals. Yeah. You know, he was, um, you know, I, I love Brian. You know, he was a great guy. He, uh, but he had his way of doing business and and he he was a one like i said he was really literally a one-man operation and so he just didn't have the wherewithal to operate any differently than what he was doing you know we right. brought a little bit different vision to the the company you yeah. were a, a business master by that point i mean you dealt with you know multi-million dollar businesses you know over lunch and, you know, but what I want to know is when you got to the garage at your house and y'all were dealing out of your garage, trying to get this thing started, how many times did you walk out and flip the light on in that garage and go, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> what did I get myself into? You know, we were, um, a few times, you know, uh, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. You know, it was, we were too busy to, to, you know, to be second guessing, you know, the decision too much and yeah. things were moving really rapidly. And so we didn't have time to commiserate, but, you know, to be quite frank, you know, to, to all of a sudden go to a, a two man operation, you know, it was, it was quite a challenge to say the least, you know, we had thousands of people, you know, we had, uh, assistance to do our assistance work you know and now we're we're still really much uh, pretty much the chief cook and bottle washer you know so right. awesome. what prompted the decision to go to a ball head as your first major offering um because uh, up to that point um you know the major all of our plates have always been arca swiss compatible and based on you know actually a non-published standard it's kind of interesting when brian first started doing the plates he started doing them uh to a u.s based standard you know one and a half inch dovetail you know arca swiss wasn't doing one and a half inch dovetails they were doing something based on a millimeter system but brian just came up with something that he uh that was close enough and they were using screw knob style clamps and it didn't really matter. But he was always recommending Arca Swiss ball heads as well. And, and I have nothing, total admiration for Arca Swiss. But, you know, they were they had also moved their operations at some point And they were going through a bit of uh, difficulties in terms of manufacturing their ball head. And they were having a, a fair number of, of issues with their ball heads. And, you know, they were the best one on the market at the time. But, you know, we... We figured out that we could do it better than what they were doing at that time, and and that's what led us to do our own ball head. Basically, we had just been inundated with a lot of of people complaining to us that you know their ball heads were freezing up and they couldn't get them to work right, and so we came out with our own ball head. Yeah, I've got scars on both shoulders where um, 
for for years I used the old studio ball, and I don't know if y'all yeah. remember that. It was huge. And when you put a 600 on it and throw it over your shoulder, it goes and it bends down and pinches that skin right on your on your shoulder. And uh, yeah, I, I literally have scars on my shoulders from it. Uh, so yeah, I can relate. That's pretty much how we've gotten into just about every one of our products. There was something that we saw that was deficient that we figured that we could do better. You know, we have stuck to uh, Brian's original ethos of of having really right stuff you know the 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 best stuff that you can get and um that's that's what we've always wanted to do and we if we if we couldn't figure out a way to do it better then we wouldn't introduce anything at all you know if we didn't think that we could uh, improve on something that was already out there you know not even do it you know one reason we build everything right in the united states we build it right here in utah but we were in san Luis obispo you know both Places are not exactly the cheapest place in the world to be building equipment. And so if we can't do it uh, better and, you know, have superior service or whatever, then we can't justify our existence. Well, you definitely have great customer service for sure. I mean, the product's wonderful too, but in addition to that, which is, you know, a plus is that, I mean, I can call up there and say, either I need something, I don't know exactly what I need, or I've got a problem or whatever. And immediately, I mean, it's, you know, it's taken care of and it's taken care of with smiles. And, um, and I personally really appreciate that. You know, the, one of the things that I get a lot was people thought when you and I were working on the show together, that I was using really right stuff products just because, you know, because of the show. And that was not the fact at all. I mean, I was using your stuff before the show and that's the reason that I, that I approached you. So I truly believed in the, in the products as well. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely been the best equipment I've ever used for sure. So, well, thank you. And and not only the equipment, but the, the corporate ethic, I think that, you're talking you were talking about just now and what Doug has talked about with customer service as I was doing a little bit of research beyond just the product and beyond what I knew about the company there was a video on YouTube and and the quote from you was you know they'll stay on the phone as long as they need to to get an answer and if if you don't provide what somebody's looking for they will your customer service people are trained to find the solution and I thought that was very impressive in in the world of corporate competition and in a, in a highly competitive market. There's been many, many times that we have recommended customers to go to Kirk or to Wimberley or to, uh, or to B and H, uh, or some other, some other place that, you know, if we don't have it, then we'll make sure that they find a, you know, the, the right place to go. Let me ask you about the, uh, you know, how really right stuff is, kind of built as far as the modular design. I mean, everything you have is modular. Everything fits everything. You know, tell me about the decision in, in making your products that way. Well, it's kind of more uh, evolutionary than, you know, it's become more strategic now, but it, it's really just based on that that dovetail standard. You know, we've we've since published a standard. We're, we're the only ones out there that have actually published the, the dovetail standard. And so most folks are actually using our standard now in terms of machining their plates to the same dimensions as what we came up with. But, you know, to have a standard is really valuable. It helps everybody in the industry. And so just sticking with that same standard just makes logic. It's pure sense. It makes sense. You know, if you can kind of stick with that standard, then it doesn't matter if you've got uh, a product that was built 20 years ago, or if you got something that's built now, it's still going to work. They're going to work together. So it, it just makes perfect sense. And in our stuff, as you know, as you all know, is quite expensive. It's, it's an investment uh, for our, our customers. We feel like we have to protect the investment that our customers have made by sticking with the same standard, by doing what we can so that if they ever have to sell their product, when they do sell it, they, they can get a big chunk of their money back out of it. It's not quite as true for plates because camera models come and go and if the if the model goes then you know you can't really sell the the plates for the same kind of price but our ball heads it's crazy you go online to ebay and you're oftentimes you'll pay 80 percent of the new price for an old really right stuff ball head 
Yeah, they well, they definitely hold up well. I have abused mine. I know you don't like to hear that. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll never forget it, me and David. Uh, if uh, for the listeners, David was uh, my cameraman for the TV show, and David and I went out and did a show with Joe. And we went out shooting one day. And Joe, David, and I laugh about this together all the time, uh, affectionately. So we went out shooting with you on the bluffs there by the ocean. Yep. And yep. we had our gear, you know, just already out and, you know, laying tripods on the ground. Joe pulls out this bag. And in the bag is another bag. And out comes a tripod that's got a plastic bag around it. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I know he thinks I'm abusing his products, <laughs> but I do. I, I, I use them. It's kind of like a, a carpenter. You know, that carpenter pays good money to get the right tools and he's not afraid to use those tools to get the job done, but he is careful with them. And that's the way I treat my stuff. But I can tell you, I've used your tripods, your, well, the tripods and his under salt water. And I mean, you know, it, it stuff holds up, and uh, so it works great. I was talking about the modular thing, too. I can't tell you the amount of times that Mike and I have been out videoing, and we're trying to rig up something, something that, you know, just trying to solve a problem. And, you know, I'm like, Mike, I need this really right stuff, plate, or do you have this screw or this plate? And we're rigging up funky-looking stuff <laughs> just to make it work. Uh, so that part of it works great for being modular. You know, you can yeah. just come up with all kind of great creations to problem solve uh, yeah. in in the video world cinematography filmmaking you know it's problem solving is a huge portion of what we do yeah so um you know, something we do you know whether it's video or still photography all of our gear this is how i approach it as a professional everything i own from my clothing right down to the camera gear is the best i can find for the durability for the reliability and it's refreshing to hear a company that wants to stick to that because any one component of our setup fails when we've traveled to central Alaska or some remote place, it shuts things down. We depend on it. You don't want to carry two. I mean, there are some things you have to. So knowing you have the best gear and that the company invests in that gives confidence, right? And so as professionals or serious photographers of any sort, you invest so much money and time You've taken time off of your regular life, whatever it might be, to do this exciting trip. You want your equipment to work. So really right stuff's reputation of excellence, quality good enough to pass down, quote, from your website, right, mm. is one of the reasons we're excited to have you on to hear about your company and and the ethics behind that. So both Michael and, and Doug have, have spoke very highly of experience with your equipment, too. So it's important. We have to have the best equipment. You know, when we talked about the doll sheep hike last month, it was boots was one of the things that came up, hiking boots, right? You, It's worth spending an extra few hundred dollars on a pair of hiking boots that'll keep you comfortable and safe on, on that adventure. The equipment is just as paramount, just as important to have quality stuff that's not going to snap, break, slide, give out on you during your adventure. You want it to be a success. The last thing, when everything is lined up, to have an equipment fail, Nobody likes to hear those stories. So right. that's the last thing I want to worry about is, is my equipment going to work or not? It's I want to take be, a beating. Yeah. When I want, right. I want to be spend those brain cells being creative, not mm -hmm. worrying about whether my stuff is going to work when I get there. So, you know, well, the thing I like is we've been shooting video for years and most of the stuff that I buy from really right stuff is for stills. But I wanted everything as a standard. So I wanted to use the same clamps with the same plates. And I just retrofit whatever I could get that would fit my red camera or would fit, you know, some lens or something so that it would work for video. And it just made my systems all congruent. But now you're getting into cinema or yeah. you've been in cinema, but more you're developing more, new products. More and more. You know, it's always been a bit of a challenge for us in terms of capacity. You know, we're, we've been capacity constrained, and we still are. We have been, uh, you know, I apologize to all of our customers. We've been hand-to-mouth for a good six months, mainly because of this move. It, and it's holding things up. And now that's, again, one of the reasons that we needed to expand um, and why we decided to, to make this big move in the first place is so that we could do a, a better job of, of supplying the market. But yeah, we've got a lot of stuff coming online for the video world. Uh, we just got to get it out the door and uh, let you guys 
play with it. I want to be the first customer for the new, uh, well, I don't even know if I can say it yet, but there's some new things coming down the line. Right. Yeah, very, very exciting. And I'm ready to get my credit card. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. you, Um, Considering where you've come from, you know, dealing with Brian Geyer up to present day and all the moves that you've made and all the, the products that you've developed, knowing what you've done over the past years, where do you see yourself in 10 years? What do you, what's your, has your goal changed any to, you know, what you, the mission statement of, of really right stuff is, or uh, we're, we're pretty consistent with our mission statement. And we, we, uh, we, you know, strategy is all about saying, no, you know, what are you not going to do? Um, there's always more good ideas than there is, um, energy and dedication and, and, uh, passion to, to follow and to make happen. So there's, you know, there's never a shortage of great ideas. And so strategy is all about saying, you know, what are you not going to do? And, and, and trying to stay consistent to that. And we very early on wrote our mission statement, our, our vision, mission, and core value statement. And we try to, to absolutely stay uh, focused on that. We, we pretty much stay in the camera support world. Uh, I, or I should say equipment support world now. Uh, it's not just cameras and video cameras or, or whatnot, but it's also evolved into uh, supporting the um, precision rifles for one, uh, for law enforcement and military. There, a lot of them are using our gear in Afghanistan and Iraq. A lot of the special forces guys are using our, our tripods for that or surveillance. So we're staying true to the, the support gear. You know, we don't, you know, I don't know how many times I've had somebody say, well, why don't you make this lens? Or why don't you make, um, why don't you get into the camera business? Why don't you make a, a video camera? Like, you know, look at Red, you know, they've come out with this fantastic camera. You know, we will probably not ever get into that kind of thing. We want to try to stay true to the support gear business. We want to focus on the, the core values and, and stay consistent. Uh, a lot more of our business will probably come from the um, precision rifle support end of things, more than it is now, I should say. That wouldn't be more than the camera side. We'll always be very strong on camera and uh, particularly more and more in the videography side. The videography world, you know, the commercial cinematography world is, is a whole different beast. It's not so much the end user buying gear for what they're using. A lot of them are renting gear from uh, rental shops. or uh, So there's, there's a lot of uh, interesting things going on there. Of course, we also have to be absolutely cognizant of technological changes. In-camera stabilization or in-the-lens stabilization is an issue. Uh, but we always see that, that support is always going to be needed, even if Camera manufacturers can uh, perfect image stabilization technology uh, to the point that many f- images wouldn't have to be shot off of a, a tripod. But for you guys that are in the cinematography world or people who are in the wildlife photography world, the gear is heavy. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no uh, way around physics. Sorry, it's got to give you some optimism with these with the DSLRs that do have stabilizers for still photos, you know, some people have got away from tripods, but now that these cameras can create outstanding video, they again need an anchor point. Or right. you know, even very, very high resolution images, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the Sonys and the, the Nikons and the Canons that, that, that have 40 plus megapixel uh, sensors. You can't get everything out of that sensor unless you're on a tripod you know i shouldn't say you can't but it's very difficult to get the most out of that sensor unless you have good good uh high quality support well i know for myself speaking for myself i need the support for when i want to do video and i i have to have the option in the field to do both because of that emerging market and since the cameras can handle that so even for some situations where mobility is important it's still critical to have good quality support on the trip for when video is going to be recorded. Now, coming back to you know, Doug's question about where do we see ourselves in the future also, you know, as you probably are aware, it used to be that we only sold direct to the end user. 
And uh, recently, you know, within the last year and a half, we started selling through B&H. And we haven't been able to sell too much beyond B&H because of capacity constraints. So uh, another thing that will evolve as we go forward is uh, third-party distribution will become a bigger part of our uh, business model. Particularly important for the overseas customers that we have, it's difficult to buy direct as an end user from uh, from somebody from from a company that's in another country, and so it, it will benefit them more and more as we uh, get more and more business outside of the U.S. Presently, the U.S. accounts for a much much larger percentage of our business than it accounts for the worldwide share of camera sales. So we have a lot of opportunity outside of the U.S. for growth as well. Excellent. Well, I meant to ask you, are all of your employees photographers as well? I mean, uh, do they take part, if they are photographers, do they take part in product testing and suggestions and that kind of thing? Well, not all of the employees are, are dedicated photographers, but many of them are, and particularly in the engineering department and in the marketing department, the ones who are most accountable for new product development. I would say probably at least 75% of them are very dedicated photographers, um, and the other 25, 20% of them are occasional photographers. But yeah, it, it, it's part of our, our DNA, you know, we, we, right. you, you got to get out, you got to, you got to understand the customer's needs. And the only way that you're going to understand the customer's needs is to experience the customer's problems. And so, yeah, we, we love to get out, you know, uh, not last week, but the week before I was in the mountains here in Utah every morning trying to get fall photography shots you know it was just wow. i just couldn't pass it up so every single morning i would get up early and i would get up into the into the canyons and then i would come into work around 10 11 o'clock uh but you know I, I continue to be very much an avid photographer and like i said most of our engineers are too yeah i wanted to ask you about your your own personal photography you know just aside from really right stuff you know i didn't realize that you were actually into photography prior to getting into you know acquiring really right stuff i didn't know if it was just a, a smart business decision or you were just burned out on what what you were currently doing or you genuinely had a love for photography and you know oh, yeah. obviously you do now now that i know that but uh you know what makes joe tick that's kind of what i want to know what's your passion you know well, well, my main passion are my family, my religion, you know, my hobbies are secondary to those. But photography is, is right up there. Uh, you know, it's been a major driver for me. Uh, when, when I moved to Asia, I spent um, 15 years in Asia, living in Asia. Oh. And when I moved over there, I, I couldn't take my rifles with me and my shotguns. And I... Uh, I always enjoyed photography anyway, but, you know, I, I kind of set aside some of those hobbies and focused more attention on, on photography. And it's, it's harder, you know, it's harder to get a, a great image than it is to shoot an animal, you know, and I, and I have nothing against uh, hunters. Um, I, I, I am one, you know, I, I, I haven't done much hunting uh, these days, but, but I, I love to get out in in the outdoors and that's what hunters love you know um, right. non-hunters don't understand a hunter's heart very well you know and i i wish they could get out and, and be more like that or or, or to experience that you know usually a hunter will go out and you know nine times out of ten they won't shoot anything you know but they love being out in in the woods or in the mountains or in the, or wherever you know and and it's the experience, and, and that is very, very similar to a photographer. I love both, you know. Both are conservationists, right? The whole movement yep. in support. A lot of hunting-based um, revenue goes into conservation right. for the whole ecosystem. Um, something I wanted to mention, too, that you have on your website, you have a, ma a quarterly magazine, which is quite impressive, a downloadable PDF called Light and Shadow, the Really Right Stuff magazine. Yes. I love what you write under that is a love letter from Really Right Stuff to photography. That says it all, right? 
Yeah. So, yeah, we, it, we enjoy we enjoy doing that. You know, we used that kind of took the place of our catalog. We used to have a catalog and and we used to have articles in the catalog and we would put a lot of product stuff in the catalogs, but you know, the the internet pretty much has uh, taken over for the need for publishing pictures of products and and specifications. And so we've evolved to, you know, try to have most of that kind of information on the internet and then use the the light and shadow to publish interesting imagery and articles uh, to benefit our customers. And they're great articles about all aspects of photography written by photographers, not yep. not by your staff, but by photographers and, and their well, images support that. Uh, most of them are written by uh, professional photographers. Yeah. Right. Okay. Either professional yeah. photographers or a guy like Miles Morgan. I don't know if any of you have seen his articles in there, but he's, he's a fantastic photographer. He's a United Airlines pilot. You know, he flies wow. over the world, but you know, photography is his passion. Sure. And he's a great photographer. He's not a <laughs> professional photographer, but in, in I think I have heard the, him on a I've heard him on a podcast and he's kind of a nut, isn't he? Great he's guy. Kind <laughs> of no, he is super funny. This guy is he's oh. just he's all about having a good time and enjoying what he's doing. It doesn't matter, you know, if he's flying he's kind of the guy that seems to me like he'd be fun to fly with. Because he'd be cracking jokes while you're sitting back in coach. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of guy he seems to be. Yeah. But yeah, he is He is funny to listen to. Yeah, I mean, th- those are the kind of guys that, that write articles for us. A lot of them are professionals that, that lead workshops. Um, uh, and others are guys like Miles, you know, guys that we know. Or just customers. I mean, some of them uh, we just know as customers. Oh, it's uh, a great interactive, right? Thank you. Thank you. And your son, I, well, I know Joan, your wife works with you, um, but your son now works with you, right? That's right. Joe Jr. has been working with us for about eight years, I think. Okay. Full time, you know, ever since he graduated. And he's mainly marketing or he's in development? He's marketing or? director, right. Okay. All right. Great. Hey, nice I have a question. So new cameras are coming out. Like it seems like every two weeks you hear about a new camera. How do you guys keep up with, I mean, every one of them has to be engineered to be just that precision fit and make and all that. How do you guys keep up? Well, I mean, that's why we have six full-time engineers uh, working with us. You know, that's part of what they do is just try to keep up with those. And we don't focus on all of them. You know, we, we, we have plates from um, the high-end stuff. Those are the ones that really sell well for us, not so much the low-end stuff. So all the professional grade or, or the notch below are the cameras that we will focus on primarily. But also we hire uh, a lot of, of engineers that um, are, are great at photography. Many of them have worked for us for just a long time. They know exactly what we need in terms of fit and finish and, and feature set. And so, uh, and also our customers will let us know what we need to be making stuff for. They will call us up and say, Hey, this came out. I need this, you know? So we get a pretty good, um, barometer from our customers as to what is going to sell and, uh, what they really want, uh, custom plates for. So when a new camera comes out, what is the timeline? Do you guys, uh, do they just notify you and say, Hey, we're coming out with a new camera give you kind of a heads up or do you have to wait? We're just small peanuts you know they don't think of us hardly at all i mean luckily we we have great relationships with nikon canon and sony and uh, olympus um they they uh they will oftentimes lend us a camera but usually we don't get it until after the camera has been launched so we we don't get cameras in advance of being launched and so in terms of time frame it depends it depends entirely on when we can get the camera in our hands and how long we can get the camera. We can, you know, sometimes we'll only have a camera in our hands for two days and we have to send it back because it's, you know, the, the camera manufacturer, um, they're using that camera to give, you know, send it out to everybody there. You know, a lot of different people are trying to get their hands on those cameras to write reviews or to, you know, uh, whatever. And so uh, sometimes we'll only have a camera for a couple of days. I mean, we, we, we'd love to, to have it in our hands a lot longer. Sometimes we just have to buy it. And if it's a camera that we know 
is going to be very popular, we'll just buy it. And uh, we have a, relationship, a good relationship with B&H, who we sell through now. And so we uh, will oftentimes just have to buy it at market price to, uh, to get our hands on it. And, and like I said, sometimes we know we're going to have to just keep, keep it in-house long-term anyway. So, I mean, we have, we have Nikon systems, Canon systems, Sony systems, Olympus systems. Uh, we've got Red. We've got Black Magic uh, wow. camera in-house. We've got a big investment just in cameras and and video equipment as well. So when you get to go shoot in the mountains for fall colors, you just go to the big old shelf and you say, huh, <laughs> what do I want to use today? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, except, you know, a sob story, I, I can't find my, my Nikon D850. It, it, somehow in the move it's been misplaced and we, we can't find it anywhere I, you know we're still haven't given up on it but uh again we, we we've got uh, so i couldn't find my 850 so i had oh i, I could use my my 5ds or i could use the the sony a7r3 a7r yeah right you know so uh yeah i've got plenty of choices uh, it, it's uh one of the the perks of being in this business right exactly yeah i'm i'm uh, just like you guys, I'm a camera geek. I'm a gear <laughs> geek anyway. Well, that's what's got to be kind of fun doing what you do, too. Because if you're a little geeky like I am, you've got every little, like, little packages of stuff. And you got little yeah. gadgets and you got little drawers. And, and like uh, Doug was saying earlier, you can solve every problem, right? And, yeah. and But you've got to have all that stuff at your yeah. ready. Yeah, I'm going to create a mosaic wall in my office <laughs> with nothing but Allen wrenches that I've that comes standard with my really right stuff packages. <laughs> yeah, and on most of our L plates these days, we have a storage facility you know, mm -hmm. in the plate nowadays, so it'll just stow right in there. That you know so that cool. is so that slick so, that I forget yeah. that I have it. Because it's always yeah. there, <laughs> right. and then I'll be just sitting there waiting for to take some images, and I'll be, you know, like picking around on my camera, and I'll be like, "Oh, here's my Allen wrench." Mike and I were just in Colorado shooting elk, and I was digging through everything looking for an Allen wrench, and then turned my camera over after I'd gotten everything tightened up, and there, there it was. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's our form of an Easter egg, <laughs> right? <laughs> So out of all the stuff that you've built, what's your favorite? Do you have your one favorite product that was like, that is so cool. That is just the best. Is it, do you have one or can uh, you have I, one? I um, probably, I don't have a favorite. I probably have three favorites. You know, one would be the BH-55. You know, that really kind of put us on the map. But in terms of the, the one that I use all the time, I use um, the FGO2, the fluid gimbal head. I'm using that constantly. I, 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 I use it. I use a gimbal head. If it's not that one, I use the PG-01, which is the, our small compact one. I love to use a gimbal head for fine landscape photography, uh, you know, because you have discrete movement in the pan and in the tilt, and you can get very accurate composition uh, very easily and fluidly. So I use that on top of a, a leveling base. And then our tripods are uh, uh we, you know, i love the tripods and we we make you know little bitty changes constantly to all of this stuff the mark ii tripods were a much bigger change than than what we've been making in the past but uh to address doug's issues partly you know we sealed the twist locks with the o-rings uh -huh. and whatnot yep. so that he sucks it down into the salt water <laughs> or, you know, we won't you know, it it, uh, it won't get fouled with sand and crap when you, uh, you know, you can wash it off easier. But, um, yeah. So it, how it, hard is it to work with carbon fiber? Is that a really difficult material to play with? It is difficult to, to work with, you know, because the, the carbon, the fibers themselves get into everything, you know, when you're, when you're grinding that stuff and, and uh, you know, you got to just have absolutely clean environment and good safety uh, systems in place. I mean, it's, it's an inert product. It's carbon. It's, uh, you know, there's nothing toxic about it, but the fibers themselves are like glass, you know, so they'll, if you're not careful, you can get cut. But 
it's a fun product to work with. I mean, you can do so much with carbon and it's, it's just truly a, a space age product. For sure. You know, we worked for two years to come up with the, the weave pattern that we have on our carbon fiber tubes. It's not just the outside weave pattern, but it's the internal structure of it as well. But to come up with the right combination of layers and, and directions of the fibers and everything else, it, it took us quite a while to get that exactly where we want it. And well, did uh, you get that idea from kind of from the Damascus uh, shotgun barrels? You know, they weave the Damascus steel. Yeah, you know, not just not just shotgun barrels, but also these days uh, knife blades. I don't know if you've seen the Damascus knife blades. I have. Just gorgeous. Uh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of stuff is, is really cool, but um, it, it it wasn't from that. It was just from the industry itself. You know, there's already that that uh, those weave patterns, but we we changed up the patterns quite a bit. And then it was, a lot of it was also just cosmetic, and we did consumer research on what patterns the customers preferred. So you know, I was listening to another podcast the other day, and it was. Um it's the Anchored Podcast by April Voki, and she interviewed a guy by the name of, I think it's Gary Loomis, G. Loomis. So if anybody's a fisherman, you know the G. Loomis, right? Yep. Well, he was originally working for a fiberglass manufacturer, a fishing rod manufacturer. He went to a trade show, and they showed up with graphite fishing rods, and he was totally enamored with this, and he's like, this is the future, but I got to figure it out had no way to figure it out because there was just so little written about this. And this is, I think in the seventies, I can't remember exactly what he ended up doing is he was based in the Pacific Northwest. And he said, what he did is he went down to Boeing and he stood outside the door where the employees left every day. And he would just ask everybody, know anything about graphite, know anything about graphite. (laughs) And finally it was like three days passed and nobody knew anything. And finally one guy stopped and said, you know, are you going to be here tomorrow? And he's like, yep. Till I figure out what graphite is, I'm going to be here. The guy finally said, well, the engineers are leave from this door down here. You should go down there. So he went down there and he ended up figuring it out. He found three or four guys. They all kind of worked on this whole tubular carbon fiber thing. And the rest is history. I mean, it's, it's yeah. just, he wow. basically, made that industry happen and and it's probably a lot of the same technology you're using today only refined about a million times and and so much better well that's another benefit of being in utah because the uh the carbon fiber um ecosystem in salt lake valley is is very well developed we've always you know all of our carbon fiber tubes have always come from salt lake and you know there's just a big defense contractor industry here and the uh, climate has a lot to do with it as well. The, you know, the dry climate is conducive to good carbon fiber layups and whatnot. So um, that's another benefit of being here in Utah for us. Man, it would just be so much fun to walk into your shop and say, oh, I think I want to make one of these today. Or I want to <laughs> talk to an engineer and say, how about we make a plate for this? Or how about we make this? That would be a blast. Well, you know, we're going to have open house on the 16th of November, 3 <laughs> p.m. Right. Come on down. All right. You're not it's only an eight-hour drive. Yeah. Right. Actually, Ron's closer than that, aren't you, Ron? Yeah, Evanston would be real close. Can't well, you, I'm in – actually, Doug and I were talking about meeting – it's not too far from Salt Lake, actually, in southwest Wyoming to photograph. I'm up in the north northeast or central east – uh, part of the state now but we we're talking about meeting for the mule deer migration to photograph that yep. and so the 16th is not outside the realm of possibility well you know come come regardless of the day you know come visit sure. us when you're out there i saw three bighorn sheep in the canyons uh really? yeah 20 minutes from my house here they weren't very big and they weren't very picturesque in fact they were right alongside the road but uh I've never seen bighorn sheep in that canyon before. I, I've photographed um, mountain goats up there, moose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, heard some elk up there uh, last week or two weeks ago as well. A bunch of elk up there. So I mean, we got we got it all right here. Yeah, you're in yes. a great great part of the country, right there in that corner, the Uinta Mountains in south southwest Wyoming, and 
and Utah is a, is a great spot. You've got just about whatever North American species you want to photograph right there. Yeah, and the winters are a little bit further east from here, but uh, you know we got the Wasatch Mountain Range right here. Yeah, um, that are fantastic. Well, Utah as a whole is incredible. I mean, you just yeah. going down to the the southeast or south. Yeah. I mean, it's all good. Yeah, Moab is fantastic. Uh, it, it's all yeah. We're we're blessed to be in in Utah. We love San Luis Obispo too. It was uh, it was a wonderful place to be, but. Um, but this is this is the place. I had one other question, and if you want to get into it, fine. If you don't, no big deal. Spending that much time in China, you obviously had to learn Chinese, right? Yes, sir. So well, you see, you there you go. <laughs> you see so much well, the, knockoff stuff. What does that mean? <laughs> My wife is a Philippine uh, Chinese. Oh, cool. Oh, so. You've met Joan, Doug. I have. Beautiful, yep. very kind woman. Yeah, I spent a long time in, uh, you know, I was four years in Taiwan and four years in mainland China. So wow. you build everything here in the U.S. Yes, sir. But obviously having that kind of familiarity with China, you could go there and do it, oh, right? Absolutely. Especially with your knowledge. Oh, absolutely. But is it just better to have that stuff here and be able to just be over I, it all the time and just is that the reason yeah it is uh you know it's that and you know i'm pretty patriotic i i really feel that you know it's a big mistake for uh all the manufacturing to have moved overseas the way that it has i love the chinese i have nothing against the chinese at all but um you know i just feel like we ought to do if we can we should do as much as we can here in the united states and we need to figure out how we can do it uh, in a way that is economically feasible. Uh, yes, our stuff is expensive. I, I uh, understand it. I know that it's difficult for our customers to afford our gear, but we have full control over every process. And service is also absolutely critical to our customers, as we've already talked about. Mm -hmm. So yes, we could have done it in China very easily, very easily, and much cheaper. No doubt about it. So that's something that we could have done, but, you know, there's there's a lot of good reasons why we shouldn't do it. You know, my predecessor made it in San Luis Obispo. And so uh, if he could do it, I could do it. And if Mercedes-Benz and Porsche can build cars in Germany and sell them all over the world, then I can build tripods and tripod heads in the United States and sell them all over the world. You know, it's just a matter go. of determination more than anything well i love it i think the quality is so much better because you do see a lot of knockoffs on amazon or whatever and i'll go shoot with somebody some younger person that works with me and they can't afford a really nice plate or something and they'll buy some cheap plate off of amazon and we're constantly dilly-dallying with their gear because it just doesn't fit or work or it comes loose or yeah, whatever I, the situation is yeah i always keep a quarter in my pocket when I'm doing workshops because inevitably, you know, I'll have folks with me that have some cheap $20 tripod or some ridiculous plastic plates on it. And I have to go from person to person just constantly throughout the day with that quarter tightening these little thumb screws and stuff. And it's just ridiculous. You know, I, I, that's the reason I kind of, when I look at gear price can be an issue, but the most important thing for me is, you know, I want to buy something that's going to last, you know, a lifetime if possible. And, you know, if you take care of gear, there's no reason it can't. Good equipment is lifetime equipment is the way I like to look at it. Well, I've seen it gear. happen more than once where somebody's got a 600 on a cheesy plate on a cheesy tripod over their shoulder and the lens falls off. Yeah. So now all of a sudden that investment that you made on that big lens is down the drain because it just hit the dirt just because you had a not so good tripod. So I've always told people, don't buy a lens, buy the tripod first. Then when you can afford the lens, go buy the lens. It's yeah. hard to do because everybody wants that lens and they want to shoot that picture, but you just got to have a, just a solid rock to work on. Yeah, I'm, I'm always quite surprised that the people that will put – you know, $10,000 in a body and a lens, and then they want to put it on a $50 tripod. I right. mean, seriously, I see it all the time. And uh, so you need to uh, film that in slow motion, Doug. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. <laughs> right. 
you know, it's all about quality. What we do, our images, our, our product, the videos we put out, quality is number one, you know, as professionals, but anybody who's aspiring for success, it's always got to be about quality. And we need our gear to be of quality. We want it to last. It's worth the investment, you know, and look at the money we save by not buying film nowadays, right? So people buy the buy better equipment, buy better cameras, buy better lenses. They've got their memory cards. They can shoot to their heart's content and support is equally important. Just like the hiking boots, the support's equally important. So it's great to have you on, Joe, and to get behind the scenes with your highly reputable company and to hear about what you've done with this business, how you've grown it. And we want to thank you for taking us behind the scenes with Really Right Stuff today and for giving us the insights into the support side of the photography world. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Thank you. I, and I want to see if I can get a super secret email address to send in all the uh -huh. requests that I have. <laughs> <laughs> Questions and requests, absolutely. Well, yeah, most most of the customers know my email address already. It's just Joe at reallyrightstuff.com. Nice. Go. That's awesome. It's a great name and straightforward. Now, Joe's a great name, too. I was talking about the company, Really Right Stuff. It, it speaks to what the product is. So Thank you. thanks for taking the time today. Thank you. Thank you very much, gentlemen. So it's been really nice to meet Joe Johnson, the owner and CEO of Really Right Stuff, a company whose reputation is well known amongst serious photographers in all areas of the profession. We want to thank Joe for taking the time to take us behind the scenes with his company, and we wish him all the best with his expansion and his new facility in Utah. Remember to follow along and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening to, and look for more of our content at wildandexposed.com. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.